As we close out our series on Revelation, uh, the title for this week is To Sell is Human. And the idea is that each and every one of us is a walking billboard for the things that we value uh, and find comfort in in this life. Now, maybe that's not the way you're used to thinking about it, but but you don't have to be in sales or marketing uh, to recognize that at the end of the day, everything we're doing is ultimately selling a picture of this ideal, comfortable life. When I think about myself, there's definitely... uh, Kind of an accumulation of things that I have committed to. I've said, hey, these are the things that I value that, that bring me comfort. That, that this is, if I'm a walking billboard, these are the things that I am a billboard for Coca Cola, Chick fil A, Honda. Uh, and this one, I'm going to lose maybe half of you in the room, but um, the iPhone. These are the things that I've said, these are, these are valuable, these are worthwhile, these are things that ultimately bring me comfort. Uh, And whether we think about it or not, ultimately that's all that selling is, right? Selling is saying that you've got a problem, you've got something that's making life not the way you would like it to be, and we can comfort you with a solution. Think about the kinds of advertising that you've received. Like, oh, you know, your teeth are so yellow, doesn't that make you sad? Well, don't worry, we've got things that can make your teeth whiter, Where you look around, oh, I'm not sure that I'm as successful as the people around me. Well, take comfort, you can buy a Lexus, and then you'll never have to question that ever again. In my own life, I see how these products that that I myself have become a faithful fan of, uh, they're ultimately just manifestations of comfort. It's a hot, humid St. Louis summer day while Coca-Cola refreshes. We get to the end of the day and and neither me nor my wife have made dinner plans. We'll take comfort. Chick-fil-A is right around the corner and they have a play place for the kids. Or I even think about when we first moved here and the house that we moved into was in a complete disarray and and nothing was really livable. There were nails and screws all over the place. The floors weren't in properly. There were were no doors on any of the bathrooms. Uh, And our house was a shambles. But you know what? We could get in our nice Honda Odyssey, and we did, and we would just drive around the city. And for a few minutes, we'd be in a nice, comfortable environment, and we could forget that our house was the opposite of those things. So what is it for you? What are those things that you've accumulated, those brands that bring you comfort and that, and that all together paint this picture of an ideal, comfortable life for you? As I was thinking about this this week, it occurred to me that it, it might be tempting as Christians, uh, you know, faithful people to think, oh, you know, the, the problem is then that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be seeking this kind of comfort uh, at all. You know, we should just uh, be stoic. We should just push through. Uh, Maybe the problem here, the false teaching is that we shouldn't be seeking comfort. But what's interesting is that comfort is actually a high value, not just for us, but for God as well. If you go look in the Old Testament, look at uh, the prophet Isaiah, for example. He says this, the sovereign Lord has given me his words of wisdom, right? This is the highest virtue, right? Wisdom. But why? Why did God give me wisdom? So that I know how to comfort the weary. In another place, Isaiah put it this way. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. He's given me a commission to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. 
And this wasn't a one-off thing. Jesus Christ himself quoted this verse when he was walking the earth. In fact, he also went on then to say this. Jesus, uh, when he was on earth, said, God blesses those who mourn because here's God's promise to them that they will be comforted. And then in the New Testament epistles, you see it there as well. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can in turn comfort others. It's not a bad or an unholy thing to seek comfort in our lives. The issue is, where are we seeking that comfort from? What are the things that we're putting our hope in, the, the, the things that we're being a billboard for saying, hey, if you're looking for a comfortable, good, pleasant, ideal life, this is, what you're gonna, this is where you're going to find it. What are those things that we're ultimately selling to others? And so as we wrestle with this, this finding comfort uh, from the things, the right things versus the wrong things, as we, as we wrestle with what are we ultimately selling to the world around us, we turn to these very comforting words that Jesus said to the final remaining church in Revelation. We've powered through uh, the first six churches, but to the last church uh, in Revelation, the church in Philadelphia, Jesus writes this. To the angel of the church in Philly write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. The picture is all authority on heaven and earth. The doors he opens, no one can shut. And the doors he closes, no one can open. The idea is this palace where there's one person who has all the keys to the palace. And there's no getting around the fact that this person decides what's open, what's closed. You might think that I, as a pastor at this church, would be like one of the top authorities at this church. But I am not. Because there are doors in this building that I do not have keys to. But Steve Heap, our facilities director, he has all the keys. And if you don't know Steve Heap, you want to be on his good side because he has all authority in this building. This is who Jesus is, and this is who he's describing himself as to this church. He's saying, look, you're looking for the person in charge, the person with all control. I'm the one with the keys. I'm the one who decides what's open and shut. And then he goes on. He says, look, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He's saying, look, what I've done with these keys is I've opened a door for you. This is his promise for us. And so the question that is confronting us this morning is what is Jesus opening up to us? What is this open door that he's describing? What does it mean for you and for me? And so the first thing uh, is that I'd say that this open door represents Christ's promise to us. He's saying that there's something good for you. There's a promise of comfort that I have for you, and I have opened the door to it. This is an open door to his promise. So let's, let's see what he describes and what, what he paints a picture of. So what is this promise that we now have an open door towards? Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
He's opened a door to a new city, a new place where we will dwell and live. And to understand that a little better, to take advantage of this revelation, extreme imagery to help us understand things in our life more deeply, we're going to jump now to the end of Revelation. And the metaphor that Jesus is going to go with in this section, you know, we've talked about beasts and we've talked about angelic battles, uh, but at this point, Jesus is saying, at the end of the day, there are two cities. There is the city of Babylon, and then there is the city of New Jerusalem. And we are figuring out which of those cities do we live in, which one uh, do we turn to for our source of comfort. Now, it's tempting if you are anyone that's been in a Christian tradition or if you've read Revelation or done other studies on it, they tend to describe Babylon, I think, in in an unhelpful at least, but maybe even a wrong way. The picture when you look at Bible preachers and the way they describe it is that Babylon is this awful city. It's a city of prostitution and uh, idolatry and blasphemy, and it's this terrible place. But in fact, Babylon is a really great place to live while you're in it. Because Babylon, in fact, offers all of the earthly comforts that we seek so much in this life. And for the people who live in Babylon it's actually pretty great. They've got Coca-Cola and Chick-fil-A and Hondas there. And so as he paints this picture, I want you to see, to see past this, you know, people treat it like, oh, Babylon is this ungodly place. It's where all the heathens and the pagans and the blasphemers live. No, actually, I think it's a place where a lot of Christians live. It's certainly a place where I am tempted to live because it offers so much promise of comfort to us. And as he paints a picture of these two cities, I'm going to read these descriptions. I want you to just try and let them speak to your heart. Recognize what's going on here. Don't get distracted by, oh, this is where the the ungodly live. Notice the promises that each city makes. And so the first city he describes, he he describes at the end of the day. So after after all this, after all the the slaughtered lamb on the throne, after all the plagues and condemnation and and giant horse locusts, uh, and after beasts come out of the earth and, and angelic battles, after all of these things, we're here at the end, Revelation 21. And I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with the angel's splendor. And he gave a mighty shout, Babylon is fallen, that great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury and comfort will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. Not only that, the merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. All these things that they sell that provide such comfort, no one left to buy them when Babylon falls. After all, she had bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant thion wood, ivory goods, and objects made of expensive wood, and bronze, iron, and marble. She also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies that his human slaves, servants, for a life of luxury. The fancy things you loved so much are gone, they cry. All your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. 
The merchants who became wealthy by selling her these things will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will weep and cry out. And all the captains of the merchant ships and their passengers and sailors and crews will stand at a distance. And they will cry out as they watch the smoke ascend. And they will say, where is there another city as great as this? Where is there another city as great as this? And I think this is all of our cry. Christians too. I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself. I don't live a life where I'm looking forward with urgency and longing and desire for a great heavenly city. Life here is often pretty nice. I've got a car with air conditioning. I've got products that cater to my whims and promise me comfort. And as a result, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, you know, I'm so looking forward to heaven. In fact, as I talk with a lot of fellow believers, it's almost become this embarrassing belief, this idea that there's an eternal heaven, a city of glory waiting for us. People say, oh, you know, I'm not in it for for the heaven thing. You know, I'm just trying to be a good person on earth. I'm just trying to love my neighbor and do what good I can here. I'm not even focused on heaven. And it's become almost one of these embarrassing doctrines that we minimize and downplay. And in fact, if you ask Christians about heaven, a lot of them say, I'm not even sure, if, if they're being really honest, I'm not sure I'm even looking forward to it. I mean, is there, is there going to be golf in heaven? I mean, is there? Are they going to have Coca-Cola and double-stuff Oreos in heaven? Because I've got these things here, and they're pretty great. And so this isn't just the cry of the heathens and the pagans and the blasphemers. This is the cry of everyone who has found comfort and luxury and a satisfying life in the city of Babylon. This is our cry. And at the end of the day, we we look around and we think, when Babylon does fall, and this is the promise God's making, this is the future foretelling he's doing. He's saying, guys, the city will collapse upon itself. This place that promises ever new comforts and pleasures, it's it's not going to last. It will crumble and fall. And when it does, we're going to be there standing. Where is there another city as great as this? What is there to bring us comfort and promises of, of hope and satisfaction and peace? And in that day, Jesus says, I promise you there is another city as great as this. Not only that, greater than this, better than anything that you could imagine. And he goes on to describe the coming of this new city. You were worried about the fall of Babylon. You thought that city was great. Let me tell you, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea itself was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem that Jesus was promising to this church in Philadelphia, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. See, 
when you lived in a city that had these things, that had crying and sorrow and death and pain, you needed those comforts. You needed wood and marble and cinnamon and spice and silk and, uh, and linen. You needed all of these things to distract you from the pains, to bring you comfort against them. And, and what God's saying, no, in this new city, you won't even need those things anymore because the pains that cause their need will be gone. And you'll get comfort directly from me because I'm going to be the one there. And you won't need to find comfort in things that bring temporary solutions. You're going to have comfort from the eternal creator of the universe directly. And he goes on to say this. The one sitting on the throne says, look, look, I'm making everything new. If there's maybe one verse in all of Revelation that we've studied for these last six weeks that I would suggest would be a good one for you to, to lock away in your heart, maybe this is it. It's Revelation 21, verse 5. We have a God who says, Behold, I am making everything new. Which is so powerful to me because I think it hits at this longing that we all have we want new things, and I think we, we look at that as maybe a failing, but, but God's actually saying, no, it's not a failing, it's a desire I put in you. It's why the products we buy are constantly coming out with new and improved versions. I mean, I love this iPhone, but it's the seventh iPhone I've owned because they keep coming out with new and better ones. And so, like a sheep, I just sign up for the new one. Like, All right, give it to me. I want the new thing. Double Stuff Oreos is already the greatest dessert cookie ever invented, and yet they keep trying to make new ones. They came out with Carrot Cake Oreo. I think that was a misstep. But it's because they can't just settle on the fact that they've already made the platonic ideal of a cookie. They have to find a way to make it new, make it better, and it's impossible once you've already invented the Double Stuff Oreo. But God is saying, I make all things new over and over again, not just products, not just, not just things, you. I make you new. New bodies that don't ache and hurt. New lives that, that aren't tainted by sorrow and pain. A, new, a relationship with me that's new and exciting each and every day for eternity. This is what God promises in his heavenly city, that he makes you, your relationships, the place, everything new and delightful. And then he said to me, to John, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Hear the comfort language. To all who are thirsty, I give springs from the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all of these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. It's not wrong or sinful or broken for us to desire comfort and things that will bring us a life of blessing and peace and satisfaction. It's not wrong for us to be selling this promise of comfort to the world. God's saying, find it in the thing that won't burn up in the fire. Find comfort from this eternal promise of blessing, not from these temporary things that only promise it for a season. And then he goes on to describe this city in even more detail. But before we get there, I want you to hear this right. 
people get really hung up on this literal description of the new Jerusalem, of this description of heaven. And you're going to hear things like streets of gold, and people kind of start thinking, well, that's, that's silly. Like, what does that even mean? Like, why would you ever pave a street with gold? And, and I want you to now to just listen to it with your hearts. As I read this description here, I want you not to think of, about it with your head. This is something that's meant to speak directly to your comfort and your soul and your heart. And it's also meant to contrast with the city of Babylon that we just saw described. The city that had all this finest wood and marble and spices and food and all these, all these great things that ultimately are temporary and get burned up and destroyed. And so now listen to what God's promising you, not, not in a literal diagramming sense, but in a, in a hearing it here deeply within you, the emotional promise that God is making about his city. Just, just listen to this. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and he found it to be 1,400 miles in length and as wide and high as it is long. This city would stretch from St. Louis to Nevada, from Mexico to Canada. That's how big and and grandiose the city is. And then the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 216 feet thick. This is not a wall that can be conquered or burned down like Babylon. This wall uh, will last forever. It was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. And the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve gigantic pearls, each gate made out of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And now notice this key line. And on no day will its gates ever be shut. Because what Jesus opens, nobody shuts. And when he opens the city for you, no one shuts those gates again. This city is open for you and for me. And there will be no night there. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. 
And nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Dion Garrett talk more about this book uh, of life and and what that means and, and how we get our names written into it. But for right here, right now, today, let me just distill it really briefly. If you were baptized and adopted into the family of God by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then in that moment, your name was written in the book of life. And you were given citizenship in this heavenly city. And in that moment, the gates of the city were opened for you for all time. This is the promise that Jesus makes to us when he says there is an open door for us. But it's not just a promise of our own future blessing and citizenship. There's a second thing that he's opening the door to. He's giving us a purpose in life. He's giving us a, a designation, uh, a focus for our walking billboard. See, when you look again at Revelation 3, what he says to this church in Philly, he said, look, I know your deeds, and look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And then, then he describes it a little more, what he's saying, look, I know that you have a little strength, that, that maybe you feel like ah, you're a small church, you're not, you're not holy enough, you're not like the superhero Christian faith warriors that some other churches are, but you have still kept my word you have den- and you have not denied my name. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And this is what's so interesting. Why would he make this point? Say, I have this open door for you. And then say, and these other people, the people that are liars, the people that disagree with you, they're ultimately going to come down and fall down and acknowledge that I have loved you. See, here's the point. I can be a billboard with all my fullness of, of you know, defense and thoroughness, and I can say, this is the best phone ever, and here are all the reasons why. And an ardent believer in the Android phone system can stand up here, and they can make all of their case, and I can make I, my case, and we can argue with each other until we're blue in the face, and ultimately neither one of us will ever be persuaded because at the end of the day, it somewhat comes down to personal preference, which phone you like better. But that's not what Jesus is promising in this heavenly city. This isn't some sort of uh, competing product, Pepsi versus Coke kind of a situation where eh, at the end of the day, maybe some people like this better, some don't. The heavenly city is the only thing that lasts. All of the other comforts, all of the things that are in the city of Babylon, they're all going away. And there are not going to be people at the end of time saying, oh yeah, we we were ultimately right. We liked Babylon better. No, everyone is going to acknowledge that the city of God is the best that people living in a place where comfort comes from a God who loves you and sacrificed for you and conquered death for you, everyone is going to fall down and recognize this truth. The difference is whether they were able to claim that promise for themselves or not. You see, the, the phrase open door is coded language all throughout the New Testament, and it means something very specific. Let's look at some of the ways that Paul used the phrase open door throughout the letters he wrote. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, look, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, 
and there are many who oppose me. So, so what's he describing? Well, let's look at another one. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and I found that the Lord had opened a door for me about the gospel. One more. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. See, you and I, each and every one of us, we have a message. And what ultimately is that message? People, they make it more complicated than it is, but the message is what Isaiah was describing, what Christ was describing, and what we now see in this heavenly city. The message is a God who wants to comfort you with the things that last. This open door is an open door to our purpose of evangelizing to the world. It's saying to us that it's not, um, it's not sufficient to God that you all and I are in the heavenly city and, and then we're done. He's saying, no, no, I, I want everyone there. He's saying, when, when the destruction of Babylon comes, I don't want anyone grieving and mourning the loss of that city because they have nowhere else to go. He's saying, I want all of them to be looking ahead to my city because that is their refuge and place of comfort. See, God's saying to you and to me, that we have an open door both to a future comfort in this eternal city, but also an open door to an opportunity to bring more people in. You see, the nice thing about selling something that's so valuable is it's not a, a limited good. I can tell people how great Coke is because there's enough Coke for everyone. They keep cranking it out. And we can tell people how great this heavenly city is because it's not, uh, there's not limited rooms at the inn. It's not this situation where for one person to get in, another person can't. God's saying, I've got this city. I've already planned it. I've made it. I've described it to you. And I want everyone there. And we have an open door to invite more people to join us in this eternal comfort in the heavenly city. See, but this brings us then to, the, to the, my last point for this morning, which is that when you think about how people sell things, it's interesting to notice that the process of selling works like building a false sense of urgency. You need to act now. You need to jump at this deal before it goes away. You need to click buy before, before it's too late uh, our, our school recently put on a production of The Music Man, and, and what, what I love about that musical is that there's this picture of the huckster, who he's got something to sell, but before he can sell it, he has to trick the town into thinking that there's something wrong that only his product can fix. And so over and over again, these companies have learned to play on our own concerns and worries and fears and to promise us an urgent uh, solution to those through the product that they offer. And it's made me cynical. Because I think, is anything really that urgent? If I don't buy those shoes today, is, is my life really that much worse? But everything is designed to tell me that. But in the face of all of this false urgency, there actually is a true urgency that Revelation describes. You might not have noticed it, but in the letter to Philadelphia, he says this. He says, guys, I'm coming soon. And when he comes, that's when the fall of Babylon 
happens. That's when the, the city of earthly comforts goes away. He's like, guys, I'm coming soon. And then after all of Revelation, over the next uh, 18 chapters of content, in the very last chapter, he finishes out with this line in 22. He says, look, guys, I'm coming soon. And blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. See, there's a very real urgency here. Because for you and me, maybe it's easy to say, hey, you know what? I was baptized. My name's written in the book of life. I know that that city's waiting for me. And in the meantime, I'm good. But there are people who don't. And it affects in no way our room in the city. We don't get a better spot or a nicer suite because uh, we invite a certain number of people. And we don't get kicked out if we don't tell people, if we don't use our billboard status to sell the right thing. But there are people then that will be left out that will lose out on this eternal comfort that God has already promised us and that he wants so desperately for them as well. Because there's a place that Revelation 22 describes where the tree of life is in the center of the city, where the water of life flows from it and there's no more disease or sickness, where every curse is undone and everything that went wrong has been made right. And we've got that waiting for us. And there are people who need that message so desperately. There are people who can't be comforted because at the end of the day, there's only so much material goods can do when you're facing sickness and broken relationships and a life that seems to lack purpose and meaning and filled with despair. And we've actually got the keys to the city now because Jesus gave them to us. The one who has all the keys says, whatever you bind on earth, I'll actually bind in heaven. Whatever you lock on earth or unlock on earth, I will unlock in heaven. We have the keys to the gate. And are we selling this city to the world? Are we letting Christ's own urgency drive us that we won't rest, we won't settle, we won't let another day go by, that we aren't striving to make sure everyone who's in the city of Babylon knows that there's something greater for them because it's something God wants for them too. This is the urgency I'm trying to have as someone who I confess I don't often live in it. I don't often think about this heavenly city. I don't often live my life craving and longing to bring everyone alongside. And yet this is the message that Revelation leaves us with. This is the final note from Christ. He's saying, I'm coming soon. How are you going to make sure that people know about this heavenly city? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this picture that you have painted, that you have described a place that that is designed to pull on our heartstrings, to make us long for you and for what you have created for us. And Lord, I pray that this picture of this this heavenly city that you've promised us would, would help us not to settle for the earthly comforts that this earth promises, but that it would drive us to be billboards for the one thing that actually matters, eternal comfort with you and your son in heaven. And so Lord, fill us with your own sense of urgency that we will not rest until we've made sure that everyone we know has had a chance to hear this message of comfort 
and peace that you have waiting for them. Lord, we pray in your holy name. Amen.